0: Of uh, having a daughter in law who has given us our eighth grandchild, all under eight, by the way, because I'm a very young grandfather. Uh, We started when I was 13. No, we didn't really. And um, Ron and Tressa are the parents of Samantha, and we are blessed to have a daughter in law who was raised in a Christian home by two very godly parents, and they are having fun with our latest grandson. So, just spoil him rotten until we get there. I know they're probably watching today and we'll be there in about a month. So we're going to be there when things kind of you know get a little bit further along and we're going to go during the spring break. but uh, look forward to that it's going to be a lot of fun. But until then we're going to continue our series that we began last Sunday in Matthews Gospel chapter 8 about The divine transformation that Christ wants to bring not only into your life but in the lives of many. He will transcend whatever obstacles that are there that are preventing the power of God from having its effect on our lives. And he can transform us simply by the transforming power of the gospel of Christ and all that is there available to us in Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that today. I already know that there have been a few people that have stolen my joke from last week and have used it elsewhere. That's okay. So we're going to start with another one a little bit today as we begin our our study today and talking about the divine instrument that we are in interceding for others so that they then might receive this incredible transforming work of the Spirit of Christ. So let's talk about that. There's a Baptist, an old-timey Baptist preacher. Who um, you know in retirement years decided it was time to buy a dog. Now, because he was you know in a very remote, very conservative part of Oklahoma, he decided he wanted a Baptist dog. I'm not sure what a Baptist dog is, but that's what he wanted, and he searched high and low for a Baptist dog all throughout the state of Oklahoma until he finally came to somewhere in Missouri. He found a place where a person said, if you'll drive to Missouri, to our town, we have a Baptist dog for you. So he and his wife hopped in the car, and they went to Missouri, and they you know, walked in where the dog was, and he said, let me show you how great this dog is. And so he took the dog out of the kennel and he said, fetch a Bible. And he pointed toward the bookcase and the dog went over and sort of scoured the bookcase, found a Bible, took his paw, brought it out, picked it up with his mouth and brought it and laid it at his master's feet. He said, you think that's impressive? Watch this. He said, turn to Psalms 23. The dog gently opened the Bible and gently moved his paw and put his paw on Psalms 23. That fascinated the elderly, retired Baptist pastor, and so he bought the dog. Proudly, he took it home, and he couldn't wait to show it off to his parishioners, his church members. He invited the whole church over for a fellowship in his home. There weren't many because it was a retirement church, and they all fit in the living room, and he was showing the people exactly what the dog was doing. And he said, Fetch the Bible. And the dog did. He told the dog to turn to Psalms 23, and the dog did. And they ooed and aahed. And then there was an old codger that decided, Preacher, is that all your dog can do? Is that the only command he knows? He said, Well, I don't know. He said, Why don't you try another command? So he sat down next to the dog and he looked at the dog and he thought, Well, what command will I give? And so he finally decided to say this command, Heal! And the dog immediately jumped in his lap, put his paw on his forehead, and went, Oh! He looked at his wife and looked at his church members, turned completely red, and he said, Oh, my soul, we have bought a Pentecostal dog. <laughs> we haven't turned Pentecostal yet at Emmanuel Baptist Church, but we are And By that, I mean we believe in the power of God to transcend whatever obstacles are in Christ's way, and he can transform any life. He is a powerful Savior, and we have a powerful God, and we have victory in Jesus for those of us who place our faith and trust in him. God doesn't need a dog to heal someone. Christ doesn't even need to touch someone in order for them to be healed. But I'm convinced what God wants from us today is he wants us to be divine instruments that he would use to intercede on behalf of those who need a divine transformation from the sin that enslaves their lives. And chances are this morning you know someone right now who is enslaved by sin. Either they are lost, they don't know Christ as their Savior, or maybe they do know Christ as their Savior, but they have stumbled and fallen and they have been shackled and robbed of their freedom and their victory because of some sin in their life, the consequence of that sin. and. We are going to see today how a centurion who had a servant came to Christ and interceded for his servant in which after interceding for his servant, Christ healed, transformed the life of his servant. Because of one man's intercession, someone else was transformed. And chances are you have a friend, a family member, a co-worker, or maybe someone who is your neighbor who desperately needs to be transformed by the power of Christ. Either they don't know Christ or they're not living in fellowship and walking in the fullness and the power of the Spirit. And God is calling us today to, by name, intercede on their behalf on a regular basis because through that intercession, God will work through your intercession as we lay them at the feet of Jesus and he will answer our prayer. For God is a God who answers prayer. So I want to talk about this divine intervention, this divine instrument that you and I are then to give in behalf of others so that he can transcend whatever obstacle is preventing them from becoming all that Christ intended them to be so that he can then transform their lives. You have a friend today who needs to be transformed by the power of Christ. Chances are you do. Let's take a look at the scripture today in Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to start with verse 5 through verse 13, and we're going to see a man who's a centurion, a Roman soldier, who intercedes on behalf of his servant. And we're going to learn four basic lessons in this text that will help encourage us and admonish us to be intercessors for those who desperately need a touch from Jesus today. First of all, when my friend needs Jesus, I need to reach for divine intervention. We need to reach for divine intervention. While it is possible that you and I may recognize that there is a need for intervention... There, there's often other avenues, other places, and other people that we tend to go in order for that intervention: psychologists, psychiatrists, books, friends, others who have walked and traveled that path, who have overcome. But I'm convinced that there's no one that can intercede for us in behalf of this person more than the person of Jesus himself. And we must reach for the intervention that can only come through the divine presence and the power of Christ. That's what this man did. He reached for divine intervention. He knew that unless God did it, it would not be life transformational. It would not be lasting. Let's take a look at the text in verse 5. Notice what Matthew records for us about this event. In this narrative, beginning with verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Now notice how he reached for divine intervention. In the text, we see that he approached Christ in a timely manner. He approached Christ in a timely manner. How did he do that? Well, we see that Jesus, as we saw last week, had finished his Sermon on the Mount. He was making his way down the country road toward the destination of Capernaum. Capernaum was his sort of home office. That's where he and the disciples had landed for this particular period in time in his ministry. And they were going toward their home office. They were going there, who knows why, to relax. But I'm convinced that Jesus knew that there was a divine appointment awaiting him when he got to Capernaum. And as soon as he entered into the city, the man appeals to Christ. Notice that he apprehended Christ and approached Christ at the proper time. You know, Christ wasn't available until now. It wasn't until now that Christ was in the city of Capernaum. It was in Capernaum where he was and where his friend was, his servant. And so now that Christ was in the city, he approached Christ in this timely manner. There is a timely manner in which we too must intercede on behalf of others. And I'm convinced the time is now. Because time as we know it is running short. And one of these days, the trumpet of God is going to blow, and the dead in Christ will rise. And those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds, and we will be forever with the Lord. We are in the end days. We are at the last days. And I'm convinced that this is the appropriate time for us to approach Christ. And we must, in this time, in this period, before it's too late, intercede on behalf of those who desperately need the healing touch of Christ. We approach Christ in a timely manner. Secondly, we see that he appealed to Christ. Notice in the text that he appealed to him. He beseeched him. He implored him. He cried out for his friend. He, it, was a, it was a cry. It was a beseech. It was a moaning. It was a groaning that came from his heart, that came from his soul, for his burden, for his friend, and he appealed to Christ and to Christ alone. And I think we need to appeal to Christ. On behalf of our friends. What do they need? What can transform their life? What can transcend their circumstances? What can transcend their sin? What can help them overcome whatever it is that's enslaving them, crippling them, and holding them hostage in bondage? It's Jesus. There's no other name. There's no other person who has the power to transform other than Christ. And we must appeal to Jesus and his power alone to transform and to transcend our friends. Thirdly, we need to appropriate the proper value toward people. I, try, I find it interesting that the text says that a centurion came beseeching, pleading, moaning, crying out to Jesus on behalf of a servant who probably more than likely may have been, been even a slave. I mean, this is a servant. I mean, you don't understand a centurion is a man who's in charge of probably 100 men who are stationed at Capernaum. It, it, he's a career officer in the Roman army. And as a career officer, he's, he's interested in advancement. He's interested in his political position in the Roman government. And so in order for him to do this is somewhat of a risk for him. And yet, he's willing to risk everything for a servant, for someone as lowly as someone who waits on him in his home. Why? Because he values this nobody, this no-name, unimportant, politically disconnected individual in which he wants healing for them. And I think one of the reasons why most of us aren't interceding for others is that we don't, we don't see value in them. We just don't value them. I mean, we we see value in our spouses. We see value in our children. We see value in our grandchildren. We see value in our family members. We may even see value in our close friends. But do we see value in the masses of humanity around the world that desperately need the healing power and the touch of Christ? Thinking about Aaron, we were walking, I was... I'm praying for him this morning as we were getting ready, and I was thinking about, as I look at my screen on my, in my office, there's a, a picture that reminds me to pray for Aaron in this very desolate, this very dark place called Montreal, Canada. And I remember walking through the streets of Montreal looking at all the people who are hopeless, who are lifeless, who are damned and doomed to spend all eternity in hell because of their sin without Jesus? I don't know them. You don't know them. But should they have value enough for us to pray for them? Do our neighbors have value to us in that we intercede on their behalf? Now I think we ought to pray for our lost spouses and lost family members and lost neighbors and lost friends. But to what extent? Jesus said, go into all the world, and we must pray for the world because Jesus sees value in every individual life that is not and yet untouched by the gospel of Jesus. And he saw value in a humble servant, and we must see value and intercede on behalf of others. As you're going home today, and you're in your car, and you're at a by, look around that stoplight at other stop and see the value in them that God sees in them and pray, intercede for their salvation. Notice that he not only appropriated the proper value, but he was aware of the need. He was aware of the situation of this servant. He says that the servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He's aware of the seriousness of the need of this servant. This servant is suffering. I wonder if we're genuinely aware of the the fate of those who do not know Christ. Are we aware of those who, who, who have yet to be transformed by the power of Jesus? Are we so concerned with Him that we are burdened by their need? Are we aware of their eternal destiny? Are we aware of the gravity of the need that they have for a Savior? If we did, I'm convinced we would intercede for them. We would plead on their behalf. We would appeal to Christ without ceasing. And I'm convinced that maybe the main reason why we're not interceding the way we should is because we simply don't recognize their need for Jesus. Believe it or not, in a group this large, there probably, possibly, or some of us, they don't believe in the reality of hell. But I'm here to tell you that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wage of sin is death. And so we must intercede because of that need. What was the response that Christ gave? Look at the verse in verse 7. And he, Jesus, said to him, I will come and I will heal him. Christ received this man. This was not, not as, as simplistic as we think because, you see, Jesus is receiving a Gentile. Here Christ has just finished his Sermon on the Mount. He is walking into Capernaum. The crowds, more than likely, as he's entering Capernaum, and in his home office, is. is, is, is base of operation in Capernaum. People know that he's there. The crowds are growing larger. And here we see someone steps out into the crowd, and this person is a Gentile. They're a Gentile. I don't know if you know it or not, but Jews despised Gentiles. They were prejudiced. They hated them. They would no more talk to them, much less Touched them because if they did, they would become unclean. They were despised and rejected. And yet when this man brought his knee before Christ, he received him. And yet were we not at one time like the Gentile? For he loved us before we loved him. And he received us in our sin unto himself. He received this man. And he resisted the cultural norms because he says, not only did he receive him, but he said, I will come, I will go to your house, and I will heal this man. I mean, it was unconscionable. It was, it, was, it was incredible that Jesus, being a Jew, would even go to a man's house who was a Gentile, walk in there, and answer this request. All cultural norms would suggest that Jesus had every right to say, no way, Jack, or what I really wanted to say is, no way, Jose. <laughs> Not going there. I'm a Jew. You're a Gentile. Not going in there. And yet Jesus went into some of the strangest places. So much so that he was questioned by many of the religious zealots. How in the world could he associate with sinners? And I wonder, one of the main reasons why most of us are disconnected from a lost world is because we've sort of grown up the moat and created a A world around us where most of us, honestly, most of us know very few, if any, unclean people. And how dare we relate, associate, connect with, or commune with people who are not like us. And yet Jesus was willing to do that. And notice he revealed his will. I will come, and it's my will. I will heal him. I will heal him. This man reached for divine intervention. I'm convinced we today as a church, as individual disciples of Christ, must reach for the divine intervention that is necessary and needed in the lives of those who desperately need of a touch of Christ. For unless we intercede and reach for divine intervention, I'm not sure <laughs> they'll ever be reached. Not need to reach for divine intervention, but secondly, I want you to notice that he relied upon divine power. There's a reliance here where this man, as he's reaching for Christ, he recognizes and realizes his insufficiency and recognizes that Christ is completely everything that he needs. He is totally dependent upon the power of Christ to transcend the problem and transform this life. Notice in verse 8, But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. "...but only to say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, I do this, and he does it." Notice in verse 8, this confession of his belief in Christ. I'm convinced that he is, in this confession, telling Jesus how reliant he is for Jesus to intercede and to transform this life. But the centurion said, I am unworthy. I'm not worthy. He is elevating Jesus. He is is confessing of the supremacy of Christ. You are supreme. I am unworthy. Uh, You are in a league of your own, Jesus. You're way above me. You're higher than me. Your ways are higher than my ways. And your power is more than sufficient. You are the supreme Christ. He is humbling himself. And the word that he uses for unworthy here, it's interesting. It's the same word that John the Baptist used when Jesus came down and he said, John baptized me. And John said, I am unfit. I am unfit. For this man, I convinced, not only recognized that he was a Gentile and unworthy of the presence of Christ, but this man recognized he didn't live up to the standard of Jesus. In other words, he recognized his unworthiness. He realized his sin before a holy Savior. I am unworthy. You are supreme. Not only are you the supreme Christ, but you are the all-sufficient Christ. Notice what he says. But only say a word and my servant will be healed. Notice, notice the sufficiency here in just a simple word from Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you are so supreme that all you have to say is one word, and it will be done. Just a word. I'm here to tell you, these words we hold right here in our hand, they have power. I said these words have power. And the gospel that is recorded here, the gospel of Jesus, has the power to transcend anyone's sin and transform anyone's life. These are words of life, and they are powerful words. And every day we hold them in our hand, and I'm convinced that we fail to recognize the sufficiency of the word of God transcending our problems and transforming our lives. Because I'm convinced if we really understood the power of these words, We would spend a life trying trying to not only know them and study them, but apply them. And yet, do we? Is it more than just a Sunday morning exercise? Or is it a a life quest? And here we see not only to confess the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, but the sovereignty of Christ. This guy's not not in in verse 9. He's not trying to step on a pedestal and say, look at me. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, Jesus, I am a man who has authority, but I am submitting to you the authority. Notice he says in the text, in verse 9, for I too am a man under authority. But before he says that, he calls Christ Lord. Now, I know that's a common greeting in which you might address someone who is superior than you. But that is, in fact, what he's doing. He's addressing Jesus as Sir, as Lord. You are not only sufficient, and you not only are supreme, but you are sovereign. You are Lord over all. You are Lord over my life. You are Lord over my friend's life. You are Lord over this disease. You are Lord over everything. You are Lord. You are sovereign. And I submit To you. I am a man of authority, but I am submitting to your authority, for you are Lord, and you, as Lord, then need to transcend the barrier of the sin and transform the life of my friend. For I rely completely and totally upon your power to make that a reality in his life. Number three, I need to reveal divine faith. There's a faith here, and I don't know about your life group lesson today. But I know Patty and her life group, she teaches a life group, that they were talking about having faith on faith, putting your faith in your faith. This is not what this man did. He wasn't putting faith in faith. He was putting his faith in Jesus. He was putting his faith in the divine Son of God who had the power and the ability to transcend the disease and transform his friend's life. Notice in the text in verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I say to you, with no one is left in Israel, have I found such a faith. Jesus here announces this man's faith. He announcement Jesus made regarding the centurion's faith. What was the announcement? I have yet to see anyone have this kind of faith. I mean, Of all the miracles Jesus did, there are only two Gentiles that received healing from Jesus. And this is one of the two. Now what made this amazing, because it said, and Jesus marveled, he was amazed. I don't know about you, but it takes a lot to amaze Jesus. I said, it takes a lot to amaze Jesus. You can do a lot of things and think that you've amazed him. But I'm convinced 99.9% of what we do doesn't amaze him at all. But here we have a man who does something, and it's so spectacular that the Son of God is amazed. He is marveled. What marveled him? What marveled him was the faith of this Gentile centurion Roman soldier who had no basis no background, no foundation to put faith in Jesus. He was not a Jew, he was a Gentile. He was not one of the elect. And as a result of that, Jesus has yet to see anyone, much less a Gentile, have this kind of faith in what one word from him can do long distance in the life of his servant. Jesus, all you gotta do is say a word. And my, it's it's a long-distance thing, man. Just speak it, and it's done. And Jesus is marveled by this guy's faith. I wonder if Jesus is marveled by your faith in him. Not only is the announcement, but notice the admonition that Jesus gives in this text regarding those who lack faith. For there's a group of people that Jesus is about to address Now, Jesus is is not unsympathetic for the guy. We see in the text that this man, you know, he approaches Jesus and he lays his burden before Jesus and intercedes for his friend, and and, and Jesus hears the request, but Jesus turns from the friend and he turns to the crowd that's following him. There's a crowd that's still following him. It's a crowd that's going to follow him for quite some time, and he turns to the crowd now, just sort of. Putting the man in his need on hold for just a minute. You ever put on hold by God? You ever felt like you've been on hold for a while? And you're kind of trying, trying to check the connection? You know, I'm going to put you on hold for a minute. And I'm going to come over here because i got some business I want to do. Or what you might call business. i got some business I want to do over here. And so he addresses the group of people that are following him. And not only to say, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such a faith but notice what he says in verse 11 the admonition I tell you many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there's a rebuke here an admonition against Israel Here's a Gentile who has shown more faith in the power of the words of Jesus and the healing potential of those words. He's placing his complete faith and trust in Jesus, and Israel the whole time has rejected him. And I think what Jesus is saying here is he's giving Israel a clue. He's setting up what God is going to do through the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He's saying, this Gentile who's putting faith in me, he's just... The beginning of what's coming. For as far as the east is from the west, all the way around the world, there are going to be many around the world who are going to put their faith and trust in me as their savior. Listen to what I'm saying, Israel. But Israel, because you have rejected me, what you're going to reap is eternal hell and damnation. You're not going to be in Light, you're going to be in darkness. For you see, to mention this whole concept here of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's talking about the messianic uh, banquet feast. It, to, to recline with these patriarchs of the faith is to join in them and the blessings of being of the family of the Father and all the blessings in this life and the afterlife of Israel. But he's saying, No, 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 let me tell you, from people all around the world, they're going to come and recline at this table, and they're going to be heirs to this messianic, incredible, wonderful banquet feast in the end, in heaven. But you, you won't find a place at the table because there's no room for you. Why? Because you have rejected me. There are consequences to rejecting Jesus There are consequences to not putting your faith and trust in Jesus. For these people who were Israelites, who should have, because they were already at the the table with Christ in the patriarch, should have put their faith in Christ, and yet they rejected him. And that rejection is going to cost them. You know, there's a cost and a price to be paid when there's a lack of faith. But this man, this man, this centurion, this Gentile, Put faith in the divine, sovereign, the supreme, the sufficient, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And because of that, let's take a look at what happens next. Notice he not only reached for divine intervention, relied upon divine power, revealed the divine faith, but he put his rest in divine timing. There's a timing here that is that is sort of highlighted for us and I want to look at this divine timing because I'm convinced that there are some of us here today that are interceding for people who desperately need Jesus. And we're wondering when it's going to happen. I know there are people here today who have who have children who have grandchildren who have loved ones and friends and relatives, you've been interceding, you've been praying on their behalf for quite some time, but but you don't see any change. But I'm convinced God has a timetable. He has a purpose in his delay. And in his time and in his way, in his timing, he will answer your prayer. Notice what happens. Verse 13, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed when at That moment. Notice the compassion of Christ. He's been addressing the crowd, and now he turns to the the need. And he's compassionate toward this man's burden, and he's compassionate toward the one who is in desperate need of intervention. Jesus cares. He cared so much that he didn't ignore the guy, but he turned to him and he faced him and he said to him, notice the command, go, let it be done for you. There's a command. The command is to go. Leave here and go home. You believe, you put trust, you have faith in me, turn toward the promise and go. You can't stay where you are and go in the blessings of God. You can't go where you are and stay in the blessings of God. You can't, you can't, you can't park there and stay there and receive God's blessings. you got to move. There has to be a change. you got to move by faith toward the promise. He's saying to the man, I'm commanding you. Don't just stand here. Move toward the promise. Turn in faith toward the answer to the prayer. Just just make a movement. You believe? Then move toward by faith toward the answered prayer. Trust me. But what if it doesn't happen? Well, trust me. Turn, and by faith, toward the promise, toward the provision, toward my power. But notice the command to, and the command is to be healed. Jesus at that very moment commanded the man's healing. It was already a reality. For as Jesus told him, Go, let it be done to you, it was done. At that moment, it was done. And so the reality is turning from where he was to the power and the promise and the provision of God, why was it a whole lot of faith? It was already done. So what was the challenge in it? The challenge was in here, wasn't it? It was with my emotions. It was with my heart. It was with my trust and my faith and my belief. It was already done. So as, I, as he turned, it had already been done. He was turning toward a promise that had already been fulfilled when it says at that time he was healed. He was cured at that very moment he was healed. And so I ask you as we close, do you have a friend that needs Christ? Before you can intercede on your friend's behalf, you need to answer this question. Do I have a need to be transformed by the power of Christ? You can't turn and intercede for your friends unless you've been impacted by the transformational work of the Spirit of God in your own life. God doesn't want you to stay where you are. And no matter what you're facing today, He can transcend any obstacle, any burden, any barrier, any battle, any sin, any relationship. He can can move through you beyond that, and He can bring healing into your life, and He can transform you by His power, by His Word, by the gospel of Christ. If we'll just believe, if we'll just believe, there was a man in the gospel of Mark who brought his son to Jesus, and uh, he was having some trouble with his healing, and finally he, face to face with Jesus, he said, but if you can, heal my son. And Jesus said, what do you mean, if you can? That, that's the wrong step. It's not if you can, it's I believe you can. And as I turn from where I am and turn toward your promise, I believe that as I turn to face you, to trust you, to repent and to be reconciled with you, you can and you will transcend whatever it is that's holding me back and holding me in bondage and you can transform my life. For Christ can transcend everything and anything and transform you. Simply by his word. If you don't know Christ today, I know the power of the gospel of Christ. Because there was a time when I was a small boy, I recognized my need. And I turned from where I was and turned to faith in Christ. And it was the power of the gospel, Christ, that took me from where I was and transformed me. Into what I am today. And it continues to transform my life. Day by day. Moment by moment. As I grow in the knowledge of the gospel of Christ. And I keep in step with his spirit. Do you need to be transformed by the power of Christ today? That's Question number one. Do you? You bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. All over this auditorium as we come to our invitation time. And we come to the close. Let me ask you today, have you been transformed by the power of Christ? I don't know what's holding you back. I don't know what sin is existent in your life. I don't know what Satan, the enemy, is trying to convince you of. He is a liar today. For the power of Christ, the gospel of Jesus, can transcend whatever sin, whatever barrier, whatever obstacle, whatever lie the enemy has put in your ear, and he can transform your life today if you, by faith, will turn from yourself and turn to him. And he will set you free. The moment we're going to stand and sing an invitation hymn. And if you need today to be transformed by the power of Christ, we invite you to come. Our pastors will be up front. We'd be glad to pray with you and encourage you as you are set free today by stepping out of the crowd like this centurion did and seeking the ultimate healing that can only come through faith in Christ. Will you come? Question number two, as we close, every head bowed and every eye closed, will I intercede for those? Who need to be transformed by the power of Christ? Will I intercede for those who need to be transformed by the power of Christ? Chances are you have a family member, you have a friend, you have an acquaintance, you have a co worker, you have someone in your neighborhood, someone in this city, somewhere, one around the world who God values, who you should value, and who you need to intercede for. This centurion did not ask for anything for himself. He asked and interceded on behalf of someone else who received a healing. Stop being so selfish and self-centered in your prayers. And pray for others more than you do yourself. See transitional, transforming work of flow through you as you become His vessel, as you intercede for
1: Sure.